Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to another week of the podcast. I'm so glad that you are joining me here. If you get my weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at heartandsoil.co, you will know that I've been thinking a lot about the remembering. This has been on my mind a ton recently. And it's basically the idea that as a human group of people, as a human species, as a human community, there's an amnesia and there is a forgetting, a mist. And there's a forgetting regarding how we are meant to live as humans, how we are supposed to eat, how we are supposed to be in nature, the importance of wild places and bare feet on the ground and pausing to appreciate the beauty of a sunset or a breeze in the fall or spending time with people that we care about in community, creativity, and play. I got interested in this originally because of the carnivore diet and the idea that nose to tail eating of animals is really part of this forgetting and a part of the remembering. We've forgotten that nose to tail animal foods are how we thrive as humans, and we see this across all of the indigenous cultures that have been studied. I've been reading a lot about the Hadza recently. I really wanna go to Tanzania to spend time with the Hadza next year, but everything I have read shows that when you ask one of the members of the Hadza tribe, what is the best day of your life? They will invariably say, the day that I killed the biggest animal and fed the tribe. The day that we can feed our tribes the most nourishing foods on the planet, nose-to-tail animal foods, well-raised meat, and organs, which are so often forgotten, is really that mirrors an activity that is the pinnacle, the most important thing for the Hadza and so many other indigenous peoples. So really cool stuff, thinking about the remembering, and it goes beyond food. It's how we live, it's how we prioritize sleep and avoid blue light at night and really prioritize time with people we care about and play and getting dirty in nature, (laughs) getting dirt under our fingernails and swimming in lakes and rivers. All these things are key to who we are as humans and that is what we must remember. And you know that's really the reason that I built Heart and Soil. This company is about the remembering. It's about helping us all remember who we are as humans. Everyone here at Heart and Soil in Austin lives this way. We encourage each other to live this way. We've built an amazing tribe of people here who go outside, who swim in lakes and rivers, who exercise outside barefoot, and who appreciate the value of organ meats. And I know that organ meats are hard for many of us to eat, and I wanted to make this easier. So at Heart and Soil, we make the finest desiccated organ supplements from grass-fed, grass-finished cattle in New Zealand that were generatively raised and were developing a U.S.-based supply chain. It's part of the remembering of who we are as humans and how we're supposed to eat, but it goes way beyond that. If you read about us on the Heart and Soil website, white site, the Heart and Soil website, heartandsoil.co, you will see who we are. And hopefully we will get to meet all of you in person at some point in Austin soon when there's a conference or something. Maybe we'll have a big party at the Heart and Soil HQ, who knows? But we recently released Histamine and Immune and Blood Builder and the response has been amazing. Thank you all for your support. You can find all of our supplements, Blood Builder, Histamine and Immune, Fire Starter, Gut and Digestion, Beef Organs, Bone Marrow and Liver, and a couple of other really exciting ones also in the pipeline at heartandsoil.co. And if you have any questions, you can always email me, Dr. Paul, drpaul at heartandsoil.co. It's work that feels very meaningful to me. 
On the podcast this week, I have Dave Feldman. If you are not familiar with Dave's work, you are missing out. This is the third podcast that Dave and I have done together. And Dave is really interested in lipids and specifically LDL and its connection with atherosclerosis. Now, this is probably the eighth podcast I've done on LDL and atherosclerosis. If you are worried about a rising LDL because you are eating like your ancestors, there is a veritable panoply, a cornucopia of content for you at heartandsoil.co under learn. You can find podcasts and videos. They're all searchable. I've done so many podcasts on LDL, but this is a really cool one because we talk about Dave's recent thoughts and some experiments he's done with new lab testing that just got released from Boston Heart, specifically oxidized phospholipids on ApoB. If you don't know what that is, we get into it in this podcast, but it's a much better way of getting a sense of oxidized LDL rather than the traditional ox LDL assays, which are inherently flawed. We also talk about LP little a, and we talk about context, the importance of multivariable analyses of lipids. Dave and I are both not interested in discussing LDL in a vacuum anymore. We've really never been, but it's more important now that we only discuss LDL in connection with other variables. You hear about it all in this podcast, HDL, triglycerides, markers of metabolic function. This is an amazing one. It will blow your mind if you are worried about LDL, and please share it with your physician. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. It is how we reach more people. I imagine by the time this podcast comes out, I will have over 1,000 reviews. And thanks to you guys, it's a five-star average. Uh, please let me know what I'm doing good or what you'd like to see. You can always email me at the same address, Dr. Paul, drpaul at heartandsoil.co. As a thank you to those people that leave reviews, I'm going to be giving away a signed copy of my book every month to somebody that leaves me a review. So for the month of October, if you leave me a review for my podcast on iTunes, I'm gonna enter you in a drawing to get a signed copy of my book. Thank you for your support there. Like I said, it helps us reach so many more people. I also really appreciate the support of my sponsors, belcampo.com. You all know Belcampo. These are amazing people. Anya Fernald, the chief cowgirl there, the owner of Belcampo, was on my podcast. You can search her on the website and find the podcast we did together talking about the farm, but it's regenerative agriculture, raising cows, grass-fed, grass-finished. You can always use the code CARNIVOREMD for 20% off there, or at least through the month of October when they're sponsoring my podcast, you can. You can get my favorite stew meat. You can get amazing ribeyes. You can get liver. You can get suet. You can get all kinds of good stuff there. They have a carnivore bundle with a ribeye, ground beef, and suet, and stew meat. They have keto bundles. You can get a couple of organs there, your heart, all kinds of good stuff. Check them out, bellcampo.com, B-E-L-C-A-M-P-O. It's supporting the things that are meaningful for us. They're also part of the remembering, as is the amazing crew at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com in Georgia. Just got back from there, spending time with Will and Jenny Harris, taking photos for the cookbook. You can always use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order at White Oak. And they have all the organs. They have kidney and suet and pancreas and thymus and liver and spleen, all the good stuff, grass-fed, grass-finished meat that is regeneratively raised. Will Harris is really a pioneer in this field and is the OG here. So check out White Oak Pastures. Please support them. Really cool thing is that when I talk to Jenny and Will about low PUFA, low polyunsaturated chickens, they raise them. So if you go to their website, you can find low PUFA chickens. They're corn and soy-free chickens. So if you think that's important, if you want to have chicken, in your diet, I would definitely eat corn and soy-free chickens, and they're at whiteoakpastures.com, or give them a call 
and ask about the corn and soy free chickens. Let them know I sent you and they will appreciate that and they'll keep doing the things that help us live well. We should not be feeding our animals corn and soy. Also want to give a shout out to NutriSense, NutriSense.io. I love CGMs. My dad is wearing it. He loved the first one. I can't wait to talk about it on the podcast. I'm going to have Kara from NutriSense back soon. We're going to talk about my dad's CGM modifications he's made. I really believe a continuous glucose monitor is the best way to help you or your loved ones make behavioral change and see what foods are doing to your postprandial glucose. It's for everyone. Direct to consumer. Check it out, NutriSense.io. And my friends at Force of Nature, forceofnaturemeats.com, forceofnature.com, regeneratively raised meat here in Texas, Rome Ranch. They have buffalo, elk, bison, organ blends. I love the guys at Force of Nature. Shout out to them. All right, you guys, on to the podcast. Thank you so much for supporting my sponsors. Thanks for checking us out at heartandsoil.co. And thank you for leaving me a review for this podcast. Like I said, if you leave me a review, I'm gonna enter you in a drawing for a signed copy of the book every month, every month, um, because if you guys love the podcast, tell people about it so we can reach more people. Thank you all. On to the show. Listen after for what is going on with me. Dave Feldman, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. It's good to have you on. Paul, thank you for having me on. So for people who don't know, this is probably the fourth podcast I've done with Dave, maybe the third, at least the third, potentially the fourth. This is probably going to be the eighth podcast or ninth podcast I've done on lipids and cholesterol. So if you guys are interested in cardiovascular disease and LDL and HDL and all of the nuances we're going to get in today, I would recommend going back and listening to the two or three previous podcasts I've done with Dave and Siobhan Huggins. Uh, the podcast with Ivor Cummins, the podcast with Malcolm Kendrick, the podcast with Nadir Ali, and the podcast with Jack Wolfskin and uh, Wolfson, and also I think that's all of them. So many, we've covered it a lot, you guys. But it, it, the, the field continues to deepen, and there will be further podcasts. I'm going to have Spencer Nadolski on the podcast, do a little bit of a friendly debate in the future. Um, but it's always good to catch up with Dave. Dave has some interesting data we're going to talk about today. He's been doing these sort of experiments forever, but. Bring us up to speed, Dave. Well, why don't we start with just a basics? Where do you want to start? Uh, well, gosh, you already hit quite a lot. I, you know, before you get off of Spencer Nadalski, you should know he actually is my colleague uh, in a study that we're putting together on lean mass hyperresponders. And, and we should get into that, but we'll probably get into it a little bit later. But I'm excited to hear that you'll have kind of a friendly debate with him. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, it should be interesting. And, and we'll get into some of the notions there's a whole, so basically this is the conversation, right? Does LDL cause atherosclerosis de novo or not? That's basically the question that everyone is asking, I believe. And I feel very differently than people like Peter Atia and Time Dayspring. Peter is going to be here in Austin soon. I'm hoping to have some conversations with him. Um, there are many people on, on who agree with me and many people, many more people who don't agree with me. Um, we'll let Dave share his views. I don't want to speak for Dave, but as I spoke about in the book, as I've spoken about widely, I think that most of Western medicine misses context surrounding disease in general, whether it's levels of uric acid or levels of LDL in the blood. Now, if you're new to these topics, LDL is low-density lipoprotein. It's a lipoprotein particle. It's a simple, single lipid uh, monolayer, which has one protein in it called ApoB100, and it carries triglyceride and cholesterol throughout the body. It's generally made in the liver. And most of Western medicine believes that LDL itself, that, that lipoprotein particle that serves, granted, indispensable roles in human physiology, 
is somehow killing us in a concentration dependent manner. And we'll talk about why. I personally believe that it's all about context. And the reason it might look like LDL is killing us in a concentration dependent manner is that, as I've stated before, 88% of the population has at least one risk factor or one metric, which makes them look like they're insulin resistant. Most of our population eats way too much linoleic acid and other polyunsaturated fats, which I believe are kind of at the root of underlying metabolic dysfunction. I've got a lot of podcasts I've done on that. Next week's podcast will be about that too. But if most of the population is metabolically unwell, then the context that you're looking at is skewed. And us included in this conversation, both Dave and myself, would say that we are part of a community, perhaps, that is interested in this contextuality. Does ketogenic diet, does someone that's doing a ketogenic diet, does someone that's doing a carnivore diet or a nose-to-tail carnivore diet that is eating a little bit more or a whole lot more intentionally than the general population, avoiding processed sugar and wheat and grains and avoiding excess polyunsaturated fats and certainly avoiding oxidized vegetable oils, is elevated LDL really killing them too? That's the question we're asking. But I think that the important piece that I will frame the whole conversation in is context and whether LDL causes atherosclerosis, that is the development of arterial plaque de novo, that is in and of itself without an inflamed context, without a metabolically disfigured dysfunctional context. That's what we are all trying to figure out. And I think that's what mainstream Western medicine is missing. Understandably so, because when 88% of people look like they're swimming in, in murky water, you might assume that 100% of people are swimming in murky water, or you might not even realize the water's murky because everybody's swimming in the same murky water, except the 10 to 15% of us who are not. So that will be my framing of it all. What do you think of that, Dave? I think it's actually a very good thing to set up because without question, if LDL particles especially cause atherosclerosis in a dose-dependent manner, we would expect it to be very analogous to, say, smoking, right? Now, let's say that you're a smoker and you're diabetic and you're you know, eating junk food all day. Uh, even if you have a brother who's just like you, also diabetic, eating junk food all day, you're still going to be at a bigger risk than that brother. But now let's flip the switch and let's say that you're both health nuts. You're, you're running 10 miles a day and you're getting a lot, of, uh, a lot of good sunshine and you're getting all the right supplements. Are you still at a greater risk than your brother who doesn't smoke? I think most people would assume, and certainly I would be part of that, yeah, you are. You're still going to have a greater risk both for cardiovascular disease and for all-cause mortality. And, and smoking's a good way, it's a good place to start out this conversation because there's a very famous epidemiologist named Bradford Hill. Bradford Hill had the Bradford Hill criteria, these nine assessments that he made a very famous uh, speech about and that has since become kind of the gold standard. I think not just for you know testing the claim of causality, like a lot of people try to make use of it as a way to say that something can be claimed as causal, but really to kind of test whether you can make a claim of something being causal, because if it's falling down in these assessments, then there's a problem. So there are two assessments in particular that I'd really want to bring up that are Bradford Hill related. One is consistency. Consistency being that, of course, you would expect, just like in the case of smoking, that you could go into these different contexts, and if you find a sizable enough population, that you should see this likewise effect that you would expect to be shown. And if that's the case, then it's more and more likely that the common denominator that we're looking at is in fact the causal element. 
The other is specificity. And I won't get into specificity yet. I kind of want to stick with consistency for the moment. And let's now talk about, okay, do we see the same effects at high levels of LDL being applied back to those people who are in, say, a low-carb, high-fat diet, right? And this is very relevant to me because, as you know, I believe that in what I like to call the lipid energy model, which is to say if you and I choose to be powered less by glucose and more by fat, then that has to do a lot with cholesterol. Why? Because cholesterol is the cargo that's carried on these lipoproteins you just described. Those lipoproteins, I know we hear about them all the time in the context of carrying cholesterol, but that's not the only lipid they carry. They carry triglycerides, which we are powered by. We are powered by fatty acids, those same fatty acids that are esterified into these triglycerides as part of their cargo. And you know, one major change I think I'm going to start making, Paul, is the more you get into lipidology, the more that you find that actually cholesterol esters aren't just the cargo that you find inside of these lipoproteins. You can almost argue that they're just as much the boat as the phospholipids that are part of the monolayer on the outside. In other words, your liver will not secrete cholesterol ester poor lipoproteins. It needs those cholesterol esters to build the structure so that it can properly leave and carry those lipids around in the body. So the cholesterol esters, as well as the free cholesterol on the outside, they're all constituent components you need to have for a lipoprotein. And that's why a lot of medication that reduces the pathway to creating cholesterol results in a lower number of those boats, those lipoprotein boats, right? So now let me take this back to Bradford Hill for a second. It's pretty simple. If we see those people like now yourself who might have an LDL of 500, that actually is at the bottom range of something known as homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. And unfortunately, for those who have the genetic disease for familial hypercholesterolemia, especially homozygous, children as young as say two or three will often exhibit common signs of early cardiovascular disease. This is part of why they believe that high LDL is independently causal because Unfortunately, these children, at, at even as early as age two or three, may, for example, show tendon xanthomas. Tendon xanthomas are uh, fatty deposits that will actually appear on, say, your ankles or your wrists and hands or your elbows and so on and so forth. And therefore, we should be expecting to, again, carry across the consistency that we would likewise see this within the low-carb community uh, from other lean mass hyperresponders like yourself. There should be a greater and greater appearance of things like, and warning everyone in advance, these are some graphic images he's pulling up, but you should know about this because I do want to be very upfront. I want to be a good scientist and say, for anybody who's going on a low-carb diet who sees their cholesterol go up substantially, and particularly that remains persistently high, you should be watching for this. You should be seeing if, in fact, there are these deposits? And if so, please like reach out to us because this is something I'm certainly very interested in. But getting back to the, the consistency aspect of Bradford Hill, if you genuinely believe it's the, the disease of familial, familial hypercholesterolemia that results in this higher LDL, and the higher LDL is what results in these tendon xanthomas, as one example, then that would 
that would suggest that high LDL is causing not just cardiovascular disease, but these other elements that we see in those with, say, homozygous FH. Does that make sense? It does. And I'll just add that, as Dave is suggesting, this podcast is, this is particularly relevant to me because I will show you guys what my LDL looks like. <laughs> um, I recently had my blood work done in July of 2020. My total cholesterol is 647. My LDL is 533 milligrams per deciliter. As you can see, my LDL particle number is 3283 nanomol per liter, which will make both Tom uh, Dayspring and Peter Atia fall out of their chairs. My LDL size is 24.7. If you care about that, you can see my HDL particle number is 50.6 uh, micromole per liter, if you care about that. And I'll show you some other stuff. But this is why we're having the conversation, because there are a lot of people like me who don't eat vegetable oil, who eat grass-fed, grass-finished organic meat and organs. And I do have some carbohydrates in my diet now, and yet my LDL is massively high. So if we believe that LDL is causing atherosclerosis, then I should be accumulating atherosclerosis very, very quickly, which is something that I don't want to do. And yet, what I well see over and over, and why we begin to ask these questions is I'm not sure we are seeing the Bradford Hill criteria uh, you know, really um, uh, satisfied because there are more and more examples like myself, N of one times thousands now, of people who don't seem to develop atherosclerosis with such high LDL. So it begins to, to really question the consistency. I don't have xanthomas, right? Like I don't have xanthomas on my body and I have an LDL that's as high as somebody with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. And Dave knows this, but I also went to the extent of getting a coronary artery calcium score um, on the 20th of July, that was the same day that I got my lipid panel back. And as you can see here, my coronary artery calcium score is zero. Now, there are many people who would criticize this and say you're too young to have it accumulate or it didn't happen fast enough. But as Dave is suggesting, and people with LDL levels that are similar to mine with familial hypercholesterolemia, they will develop xanthomas in childhood and they will develop atherosclerosis in childhood. It should not take long for an LDL of 533 milligrams per deciliter to result in atherosclerosis if LDL is able to create atherosclerosis in and of itself, which I don't believe it is. So we will see what happens. I'll be watching every year, but I don't think this is going to be the problem because the context is different. And of course, what Dave is probably going to hint at now is that in kids with familial hypercholesterolemia, the context might actually be different because these are genetic mutations that affect LDL receptor metabolism and things which are not the case in myself or other lean mass hyperresponders. If you're listening to this and you've not heard that word, it's a term that Dave coined, which sort of encapsulates or crystallizes what a lot of people see in the low carb or even carnivore animal-based community. You don't have to be low carb even they see an elevated LDL and most of them are lean. <laughs> They're lean mass and they seem to hyper respond to this type of diet with elevated quote levels of LDL. But is this really causing accelerated atherosclerosis? That is the question. We'll see. There are lots of things to unpack here, but I just wanted to add all that to discussion so you guys understand why is this relevant? For me, the biggest, the biggest reason it's relevant is because what I find is that when people eat in what I and many others believe to be a species appropriate human diet that is mostly animal fat and meat and organs and some seasonal carbohydrates, LDL often goes high. <laughs> Quote, 
And does that mean that our ancestors were just all dying from coronary artery disease? We don't know. We didn't do autopsies, but it would suggest some evolutionary inconsistency if that's the case. Again, that's what we're arguing, or at least not Dave and I are arguing, but that's what we're all discussing. Perhaps Spencer and I will argue that a little bit in the future. Yeah, it's you definitely touched on a number of points I want to hit, and I will play devil's advocate for a second. I will say that if you certainly believe in the lipid hypothesis, you would argue you may not be seeing it now, and there may be other pleiotropic effects that we can't actually place or determine yet that, you know, for example, might be the reason why the lean mass hyperresponder um, exists maybe there is some genetic component or something that is also in itself somehow protective and therefore is not resulting in the same. I feel like that's a little bit of a stretch, but I do think it's 100% fair to say, uh, this may date me to say this, but my dad would use it all the time, the check is in the mail, that indeed we may find that in five years' time, there really is a very high preponderance of discoveries of those people who've become lean mass hyperresponders who see a development of xanthomas. But I will push back on one thing. One thing that uh, gets presented often toward me is that, that lean mass hyperresponders, because they're, they're super fit or they're super healthy or they're eating a better diet, that therefore they may be able to go much longer without seeing that development of atherosclerosis. The existing lipid hypothesis is quite clear that it's dose dependent and it's log linear and it's LDL exposure over time. So in fact, I would argue, given, given how the hypothesis is stated, as stated, actually, it should be the other way around. You, Paul, you should actually develop atherosclerosis faster than the homozygous FH toddler because you have an existing lifetime burden of several decades. 43 You're, years. Yeah, 43 years. So you actually have, unless you had uh, optimal LDL levels for the last um, four decades. But even then, I think what they would consider to be optimal levels to where it's regress regression level, I think, is something like in the 30 to 50 milligrams per deciliter or something like that. I'm not even sure if it's that. Um, but if you have 100 or above, for sure, you should have already have accumulated a lot of quote-unquote LDL burden that is now part of the balance sheet. And therefore, if you're adding to it. So make no mistake, if, if they're right, Paul, I mean this quite sincerely, I want to get to the bottom of this, and that's why we're doing the study. That's why I'm teaming up with Spencer Nadowski, because I've learned enough about homozygous FH that we really should be able to see these changes in high-resolution CTA scans. And you only need, I thought at first that we would need a five-year follow-up time. That's how I originally pitched this study to the community. And since talking to luminaries in the field, no, actually, as it turns out, a CTA of one year apart for a sizable population of lean mass hyperresponders is all we need because the same levels of LDL that you see in those with FH would actually show this progression that fast. Now, if you don't mind, I will tell you what I have definitely been looking into because I've been very interested in why it is that it's possible we might see these differences in FH that we don't see in lean mass hyperresponders. And I'd speculated for a long time. In fact, I, I speculated on my guesting for Peter Atia's podcast two years ago that I believed a lot of this led back to receptors. I know you and I have talked about this as well, that I believe that the receptor-mediated metabolism of lipoproteins is an important clue 
And one thing that I'll correct myself on is I thought a lot of this came back to the endothelial cells. Not so much that I think it doesn't, but I didn't think until, I want to say about a year and a half ago, I didn't start thinking about how this applies back to the immune cells that we usually think of, say, macrophages, which are probably the most famous of immune cells and are part of the process of atherosclerosis. We usually think about them in terms of their scavenger receptors. Well, LDL receptor mutations as part of FH, that's non-modified LDL particles. So you might think it's not really that relevant. But there was something that kept occurring to me, which is plaques are dead macrophages. They're not just macrophages that have ingested sterols. They are macrophages that have ingested sterols and they've died. Now, I know the common refrain is that they perhaps just over-ingested and then you know, they died on their own or something along those lines. But I have to keep coming back to that. I keep thinking, now, wait a sec, this is a failure of engineering on some part. So I want to better understand why that is. And then I, sure enough, found some papers. And I'm, I'm going to be speaking a little bit from memory because it take me a moment to find it. I'm on my laptop and I'm traveling. But I can tell you that I've looked into papers where, where they show that not only do macrophages of those with monogenetic versions of FH have, of course, mutated receptors, they actually transcribe for LDL receptors less than normal, m- normal people macrophages. In other words, it's almost as if they know, it's almost as if the cells themselves know that they can't get a lot of action. And so sure enough, they upregulate these other receptors I'd never known about uh, from the super family of LDL receptors, and they're called LRP5s. And th- those they can show, they get uptranscribed and up expressed, but they still have other problems that come from this mutation. One of those is they do have an inability in a scavenger receptor. And again, I'm speaking from memory, I believe it's um, CD169. But regardless, the the biggest takeaway, even if you missed a lot of the technical things I just said, is exactly this. Macrophages from those with uh, familial hypercholesterolemia in these species are physically different in those people who have FH than in us. And I think if it's anything to do with atherosclerosis, you want to consider all the possible ways in which it could be a different process for those people who have FH. And I think that that's what could possibly explain, if we do not see this development of xanthomas, why that really is a genetically different context. So many things to unpack there. What you're saying is the reason that I think that Mendelian randomizations and genome-wide association studies are so misleading when it comes to LDL levels and progression of coronary artery disease. So for the listener, if we're getting too technical, Mendelian randomizations and genome-wide association studies, also called GWAS, are what many in the mainstream medical community use to suggest that LDL is clearly causal because there is, again, a logarithmically linear relationship between LDL levels and incidence of coronary artery disease. However, one of the things that's interesting to note, as Dave is saying, is that when you have genetic polymorphisms, like familial hypercholesterolemia, which I believe is more than 2,000 different genetic polymorphisms that can result in elevated LDL, there are many things going on in your LDL receptor metabolism at the level of the liver or also at the level of the endothelium or also at the level of the macrophages in the subintimal space within the arterial wall 
that could affect the way these cells take up and distribute LDL particles. And that's exactly what Dave is saying. These are not perfect models. And they're certainly not, um, they're certainly not intrinsically equivalent to someone doing a nose to tail carnivore diet, to someone doing a ketogenic diet, to a lean mass hyperresponder. There is so much nuance here. The other thing I want to mention regarding my results is that I know that I have had an LDL more than 300 for more than two years. And I've had an LDL over 100 for probably 15 plus years because I, eat a, I ate a paleo diet. And when I checked in medical school, it was 122 or 140 or 160 at times. I didn't check a whole lot because I'm a medical student. And then I check in residency a few times. It's not, it's not below 100. So as Dave is suggesting, with regard to the long, long-term progression or the longitudinal progression of atherosclerosis in my arteries, I have a lifetime, 43 years of progression. And right now I have an LDL that's very high. The other asterisk I'll add to my own personal story is that when my father was 43, he had a heart attack. So I have a family history and a first degree relative of early coronary atherosclerosis. And yet my coronary artery calcium score remains zero. Critics would say, coronary artery calcium score is not perfect. Dave is talking about using CTA, CT coronary angiography, which I may end up doing. I, I, Spencer definitely wants me in your study and I would love to be in the study. CTA is gonna be better, but CAC is not worthless. CAC is certainly valuable to some extent. It would be better for me to do CTAs on myself if I could find a machine with a low amount of radiation. I know Dave has done some CTAs on himself as a self-experimenter he is, but those are two different thoughts thought lines. The first one was just kind of clarifying what Dave is talking about and the differences that someone with FH, familial hypercholesterolemia, might look like when you have um, a polymorphism at the level of LDL metabolism. It's not going to be necessarily the same context, again, back to that word context, as somebody who is a lean mass hyperresponder. And we cannot conflate those two things. That is an error of judgment that happens so often in medicine. And again, in my own case, I agree with Dave completely. I should have accelerated atherosclerosis. Kids with FH at the level of, that I have now have atheromas in childhood. They have xanthomas, neither of which I have, again, bringing this into bigger questions. One of the most compelling statements I've ever heard with regard to LDL and direct causality of atheromas was a statement by Malcolm Kendrick, which is if LDL causes atherosclerosis in and of itself, why don't we get atherosclerosis in veins? Why does it only happen in arteries? Clearly there's another variable. And there are many things like this that suggest that the consistency, or at least there are holes in this theory that don't make a whole lot of sense. I love that you brought up the Bradford Hill criteria and the whole idea of lean mass hyperresponders, which we are studying, brings into question this idea of consistency. And we talked about, I think it's important to know that many of the studies that those who would argue for LDL directly being causal for atherosclerosis are genome-wide association studies and Mendelian randomizations, both of which look at genetic polymorphisms resulting in elevated levels of LDL. The other thing I'll show is a graphic, um, which Dave will be familiar with, which is yet another graphic that people like to use to say, hey, look, LDL causes atherosclerosis um, intrinsically looking at all of the trials for medications that lower LDL. And 
you know, you can look at the weighted different weighted between group difference achieved in LDLC along the bottom, the relative risk of major vascular events. And you would look at this and say, yeah, if you lower LDL, the risk of major vascular events goes down. You can look at azetamibe trials and fibrates and niacin and CETP and statins and diet and bile acid sequestrants and ileal bypass and our favorite, the PCSK9 inhibitors, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit today. And so you could say, hey, look, it's very clear. It's linear. And this is what Dave said earlier. It's logarithmic and linear, except it's not because this completely ignores the context, which is that if 88% of people are diseased, sure, you could have this relationship. But try and do this or show me what this looks like with lean mass hyperresponders, with people who are fundamentally metabolically healthy. That is what Western medicine misses, not surprisingly, because Western medicine knows nothing about nutrition and most doctors are fat. <laughs> well, I think um, I certainly want to get back to the genetic aspect <clears throat> because this is a very important point to bring forward. A lot of how it's described, a lot of how Mendelian randomization, as you describe it, is described sounds great at the surface. So the idea being that if um, this polymorphism brings up your LDL this much, then you're going to get a likewise matching level of cardiovascular disease if you just look at it in isolation. Whereas this one brings it up this much, you're going to get about the right amount of matching. And what geneticists would say is, well, it's maybe not that clean, but it's pretty close. Or at least they had been saying that really more in the last five years, there really has been some distinction that I think is very notable. There's what they would call monogenetic FH. And really what they mean by that is these are what I would like to call the heavy lifters. There are really four. Um, ApoB, which of course is the actual protein you described earlier that sits on top of the uh, lipoproteins. LDL receptors, which I talked about a little bit earlier with mutations. And PCSK9, which more and more people are hearing about these days, that's a protein uh, that if you're, you know, if you're overexpressing it, you're going to have more LDL because it's it's actually tagging a lot of LDL receptors to be uh, dismantled. It's almost the same as if you just had a problem with the LDL receptor itself. Uh, there's also another one called the uh, LDL RAP1. It's a little bit of a lesser known one, but there are studies that looked at those first three, put them in a bucket that they call monogenetic because those are the ones that have a huge association with cardiovascular disease for the level of LDL that they can get you to. Then they took all of those other ones you just talked about. You said there's around 2,000. I think in these studies, they looked at around something like 223 and put that in another bucket. We're going to call those polygenetic FH. And if you just get just the polygenetic and leave out the monogenetic, you can get LDL levels up to the 95 percentile for the population. So you can get really super high levels of LDL. But that grouping for likewise levels of LDL have different risk values. There's a much higher risk value for those monogenetic, for those big three, than there is for the polygenetic. And I'm speaking a little bit from memory, so I may be wrong, but I think if you were to have a hazard ratio of uh, one, which I'll get to in a moment where the one comes from, the hazard ratio for the monogenetic is something like two or 2.2. And for the polygenetic, it's like 1.4. So what's the baseline? It's the no known genetic variable for LDL. In other words, they have a third bucket. And the third bucket is somebody who doesn't have either one of those uh, genetic uh, abnormalities that fit into the other two buckets. There, there are no known 
uh, alterations with LDL. Now, <clears throat> what they'll say, and they may be right, what they'll say is, well, that third bucket that I was just talking about, that may have just come about. That may actually be something that they didn't have their whole life. They, they have less of a risk because they may have had normal levels of LDL. And then something changed just in like the last few years at the point where they got the test. To which I would say, that's great. Let's just then go ahead and get the data. Let's get longitudinal data on those people who have no genetic associative uh, risk that you can find. And hey, we happen to be doing that ourselves with a study. We're looking at, like this should actually be a study. <clears throat> I say this a lot, Paul. This should be a study that's funded more by people who are skeptics of low carbers who have high LDL than it should be from the low carbers themselves. If you believe that low carbers are being very reckless with their high LDL, and again, this is me stating plainly, you could be right, then you should be absolutely in favor of us being able to make the study happen because it should show in scans one year apart in CTA, very high resolution, that there's a high progression of atherosclerosis, particularly if you believe LDL is indeed causal and is log linear. And it's, so this is really cool. I mean, just so people know, this is what Dave is doing. He has a cohort of lean mass hyperresponders who are being followed longitudinally with sequential CTA scans. I can't wait for the results and we'll see. I know Spencer thinks it's going to be one way and I think it's going to be the other way. And Dave is kind of impartial. He's the impartial observer. And I love that I, we're talking. Yeah, go ahead. I am not truly impartial. I mean, I, I certainly, I certainly, as I regularly say, I'm cautiously optimistic. But what right. I mean by cautiously optimistic is I'm not certain, and I have I, never claimed certainty that LDL doesn't cause atherosclerosis at a concentration level. Uh, but that said, given the information I've seen to date, given everything that I've looked at, uh, and particularly when I look at combination data, I have come to a different conclusion, and I want to see this in the metabolic context. That's the thing. I, I think context. if there's any driver that we've got to put forward and, and you know what, this actually is a good segue to get into what I want to say is, in my, in my opinion, the proper framing of this debate. So I, I was on a podcast recently with uh, Sigma Nutrition. That's uh, Danny Lennon and Alan Flanagan. And uh, let me first start off by saying they were total gentlemen, and I've had some great private conversations with them, even though they're very much pro-lipid hypothesis. I think it's been a very productive conversation. What happened was, is they were bringing up the so-called lipid triad. As you know, I like to identify, just to keep it at basic level, uh, what we see often with low carbers and with lean mass hyperresponders, that their LDL goes up a lot, their HDL goes up a lot, and their triglycerides go down. So it's, it's a triad. It's those three together. And they were discussing why it is that low carbers shouldn't feel comforted by that triad if it's, if it's alongside high LDL. So I then came onto their podcast and talked about that and tried to make the case for what I'd like to call the lipid profile versus lipoprotein-centric viewpoint. But after the podcast happened, they ended up doing an article that kind of tried to address a lot of the things I brought up in the podcast. And after reading the article, I thought, well, I could do a, you know, a very exhaustive point-by-point -point on a lot of the things they're bringing up, but I really kind of want to next level this. In fact, I want to next level this with everybody because there seems to be this constant talking past each other in this critical role of context. So how best can I frame what it is that I would consider to be compelling data and that meets the Bradford Hill criteria?
And it's pretty simple. I'm, I'm going to start linguistically calling these two different sets of data. One set of data is single lipid data. So if you look at a lipid marker in isolation, that's single lipid data. The other is combination lipid data, where you're gonna actually look at lipids alongside other lipid markers. Now, in order to say, hey, we can make the case that LDL is causal with single lipid data, you, you have to be able to confirm that that's the case also with combination lipid data. You can't make the case only in single lipid data because that's a category that's lumping both the lipid triad and atherogenic dyslipidemia together. You see the problem? Exactly. That's exactly what and we're talking about. And that's, and that's the issue is you're, you're bringing up things that may or may not be relevant, which is, of course, a population that's already sick, which we already know. If you were to just grab a random number of Americans, you're going to find what we already see in the statistics, which is many of them are in a diseased state. And we don't know from that how many of those have, say, atherogenic dyslipidemia, which is like the opposite of the triad. It's low HDL and high triglycerides. We don't know how much that affects LDL levels downstream. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to make the case for a single lipid data to be causal, you need to likewise state plainly that you're certain that things like atherogenic dyslipidemia do not affect lipid levels like LDL, since that is the, the point of interest. In other words, in order to say A causes B, you need to be sure of two things that are not the case, which is that B has any effect over A, and, and this is important, that there's no C or D or E or anything that's causing both. So simply stated, just like with Bradford Hill, to meet consistency, you shouldn't be able to find any population for which, say, smoking causes longevity, right? For the same reason, you shouldn't be able to see any population for which high LDL causes longevity. If you believe it is a net risk outcome, you should have the wide open invitation that I could go and find anything. And, that, and that's why like, I think from now on, I just need to be more clear, especially if the conversation comes up, that I'm very interested in lipid numbers and I'm especially interested in looking at LDL. I'm just not interested in looking at LDL in isolation. In a vacuum, I wanna, you can't right. look at LDL without context. It, makes it doesn't no give sense. me a lot of information. And, I, and I've got a good analogy to show you uh, everything that we can see in making a single metric case, and that's body weight. So body weight associates with, for example, blood pressure. The higher your, blood, you, the higher your body weight, the more likely your blood pressure increases, right? And generally speaking, generally, if you just grab a bunch of random people and you have them lose body weight, their blood pressure is going to go down. Are there genetic factors that can result in higher body weight? Yes. If you have genetic factors that result in higher body weight, does that often associate with higher blood pressure? Yes. Okay, if you have an intervention that just randomly grabs people and it reduces their body weight, will it likewise reduce their blood pressure? Yeah, actually just in, in general and random, right? Okay, so obviously somebody who's being annoying can come in and say, look, this is obvious. This can be applying to people who are obese and not be applying to those people who are, say, bodybuilders. We need to at least be able to confirm that that applies to both groups independently. That meets Bradford Hill. So 
let's go look at those people who don't just have a higher body weight, but also have, for example, a smaller waist to height ratio. And if you say to that person, no, we have enough data. We've done a thousand studies on body weights association with, uh, with blood pressure to where we can make the claim that it's causal. You don't meet the Bradford Hill criteria. This is what's great about Bradford Hill. It already had that built in. It's already baked into his existing assessments. And that's, that's what I would say, not just to Sigma Nutrition, but to anybody who wants to look just at single lipid data as the only primary means to make a case for causality. I love this. And so one of the coolest things I've ever seen is a study that I talk about in my book, which I think illustrates this. So remember that Dave's triad is triglycerides, HDL, and LDL. And if you look at the Framingham data, which is from Framingham, Massachusetts, it's an epidemiology study, and you look at the overall Framingham study, and study, study data, and you look at one data point, which is LDL, one variable, you can see a relationship between LDL and incidence or relative risk of cardiovascular disease. And this is what Dave is talking about. That is flawed. <laughs> there are many more variables. You must be sure there is not a C or a D. But what's so interesting is if you take the exact same data, the exact same data, and I'll show both of these data points. These are the exact same data. And these are graphics from my book, um, sort of uh, just illustrating the exact same data from the Framingham study. If you stratify that same group of people, again, this is epidemiology, by a third variable, that is HDL, you see a very different relationship. And this, I think, is a, a really clear illustration of what we're talking about. This is the basic data. This is the Framingham Risk Study Coronary Artery Disease by LDL. This is what Dave is talking about. Single variable, not super helpful, very easily confounded, very misleading if you don't think about nuance or other potential variables. More LDL. Pretty clear increasing risk of coronary artery disease, relative risk goes from 2.5 to above eight as you go from 100 to 220 milligrams per deciliter of LDL. Now, if you take that exact same set of data, no difference, and you stratify it by HDL, it looks very different. This is from a 1977 paper, which I'll link to in the show notes. The title of the paper is High Density Lipoprotein as Protective Factor Against Coronary Artery Disease this is from the American Journal of Medicine, published in 1977. Exact same set of data from 100 to 220 milligrams per deciliter of LDL. You introduce a third variable, which is just part of the triad, and you see that there are vastly different relationships between LDL and risk of coronary artery disease when you stratify by HDL. As we know, HDL is not a perfect metric. HDL is a confusing molecule that we don't fully understand, but in general, HDL levels do associate with metabolic health, meaning that those who have lower levels of HDL, that's often seen in metabolic dyslipidemia. Not all the time, but most of the time. So you can see that in this HDL25 group, there's a hugely increased risk, relative risk, as you go from 100 to 220 milligrams per deciliter of LDL. And it starts out at you know almost 7.5, at 100 milligrams per deciliter of LDL-C, if you have an HDL of 25, your relative risk of coronary artery disease is 7.5. The other end of the spectrum is an HDL of 85. <laughs> and you can see an HDL of 85 or even 65, there's almost no increase in risk in LDL as you go from 100 to 220. Clearly, there is a third variable here. And these people do differently. 
Now, this isn't a perfect graph because if you go from 100 to 220, there's a slight increase, even an HDL of 85. But as we know, HDL is not a perfect metric. If you added triglycerides to this, if you added fasting insulin to this, if you added fasting glucose to this, what other data points would come out of this? Start to look at LDL in a context and everything looks differently. This is exactly what Dave is talking about. And I think this is exactly what so many people are missing. That is the exact same data stratified with a third variable. What if we had a fourth variable? There are many more variables here that affect LDL. This is the context that we are talking about. People always email me. As you guys know, I answer emails at Heart and Soil. Uh, you can always email me, Dr. Paul, drpaul, heartandsoil.co if you have questions. And they say, I have an LDL of 220, is that okay? And I email them back and I say, I have no idea. How metabolically healthy are you? How metabolically healthy are you? That's what I wanna know. Tell me about your context. Tell me about the other variables. The other thing I want to share now, just real quickly, take us off topic for one moment, is another type of monogenic uh, disease called familial partial lipodystrophy. This is actually Dunnigan type familial partial lipodystrophy. What's interesting about this is it's also one gene that has really nothing to do with the LDL receptor. These people have, quote, normal levels of LDL and they have premature atherosclerosis. So this is one of the things where it doesn't really seem very consistent if we're thinking about monogenic diseases or Mendelian randomizations. These are people who have premature atherosclerosis with one mutation in the gene. It's the LMNA gene. And what's fascinating about this, as you'll hear in next week's podcast with Peter from Hyperlipid, these people end up with really, really high levels of free fatty acids. They can't grow their fat cells. Partial, hypo, partial lipodystrophy, Dunnigan type, means that people are basically ripped except for their visceral adipose tissue. They get like very big amounts of visceral adipose because they cannot, they cannot extend their subcutaneous adipose tissue. They have ripped calves and, and butt and thighs, and they actually have a six pack, but they have tons of adipose underneath and the organs become fatty because they have to put fat somewhere. And if you can't expand your subcutaneous adipose, your visceral adipose will expand. And when you get fat adipose cells, when you get fat adipocytes, when you get hypertrophic adipocytes, they leak free fatty acids. And that leads to what? That leads to metabolic dysfunction. And what does metabolic dysfunction lead to? Atherosclerosis. This is a completely different context that has nothing to do with elevated LDL. One gene with premature atherosclerosis, but the context is the same. Because these people, they don't have diabetes, but they have metabolic dysfunction because they have elevated free fatty acids and they have insulin resistance. They become metabolically broken due to something completely different than LDL. So that's a very interesting thing as well, which I think actually ties it all together. That's what I'm arguing for at least, that it's the context, it's the insulin resistance, which is really better described as metabolic dysfunction that is driving this. And you can see that with this monogenic partial familial hypolipidystrophy in Dunnigan type. So that's really interesting as well. Should we segue to talk about oxidized phospholipids and oxidized LDL, Dave? <laughs> because I think that what we're really getting to here is the fact that there are multiple variables. And I heard a podcast recently with Peter Atia and Tom Dayspring, and I was in Georgia and I was literally yelling at the car. I was yelling at the podcast because I wanted to be on the podcast and I was yelling at Tom and Peter. Uh, I appreciate what they're doing very much. And I hope, like I said, to interact with Peter here in Austin, but there was a point in the podcast where Tom and Peter described a mutual patient 
And they were essentially describing a lean mass hyper responder. They were describing right. somebody with an LDL over 200 with a, a good quote HDL, low triglycerides and no evidence of atherosclerosis. And they were admitting that there was some inconsistency. And Tom Dayspring himself, you know, preeminent lipidologist for whatever it's worth says, there is something to the quality of the LDL particles that matters. And I thought, absolutely, how come you guys aren't talking about that? And then in the next sentence, they're talking about LDL as clearly causal for atherosclerosis. And I thought, you just missed the whole point, you guys. There's something about the LDL particle that matters. That I think is so fascinating. They basically had a lean mass hyperresponder in their practice. They didn't treat them, thankfully, thank God, um, because they didn't need treatment with a statin and they didn't have atherosclerosis. They're admitting there's a third or a fourth variable. One of these third or fourth variables is the oxidation of LDL, right? And this idea that maybe not native LDL doesn't seem to cause atherosclerosis, but maybe oxidized LDL does, or maybe oxidized LDL is a better risk, or maybe there are things causing oxidation of LDL that we should be thinking about. What causes oxidation of LDL? We can measure the oxidation of LDL. You've had some really cool experiments going on here. Do you want to go to this? You want to go to something else? Where do you want to go? No, actually, you, you definitely opened a door I'm very interested in walking through. Uh, so first things first, yeah, I listened to the same podcast. I probably have, this is not hyperbole, I probably had at least two dozen different people who know me personally who've reached out to me asking, did you hear that podcast with Atia and Dayspring from this week? And I mean, just about everybody wanted my comment on it. And certainly, I found it to be very, very interesting in many respects. Uh, I, I'm, I have to be delicate here. I, I'm going to say that there were some differences I felt in opinion from when I appeared on his podcast uh, a couple of years ago. And subtle. I'm not going to say they're, they're gigantic. But certainly, that case really stood out to me because I, I feel as though, I mean, let me give you an example. When I was on Atiyah's podcast two years ago, uh, he had actually at one point put a case in front of me and was emphasizing that the very high LDL should, like what would I think of somebody with this very high LDL? And at the time, I think he meant for me to take it as this was an example of a lean mass hyperresponder and for me to give my opinion. Now, unfortunately, that case was a little unusual because I could see a lot of the other metrics and I saw that there was um, a lot of discordance with a few different things and the triglycerides were high and so forth. And so I, so I didn't get to fully unpack it. I would have liked to have seen a truly mass hyperresponder case uh, put in front of me, but I got the sense that where we were going with that was that Peter was going to emphasize why the high LDL alone would be concerning enough. And there were different things that we said in the course of that podcast. It's a long podcast. It's like three and a half hours where we definitely kept coming to different perspectives because I kept saying, I would like to see high LDL in the context of high, high HDL and low triglycerides. This was back then, two, two years ago. Certainly then, I was very fascinated to hear Dayspring talking about how particularly in the last couple of years, triglycerides have been taking more of, as he put it, a, a center stage. Um, he also later in the podcast said that if he had just one metric that he could look at, if they were trying to just bring it down to one metric to be you know, cost effective, he'd look at LDL triglycerides. I, I certainly would agree that that would be a very fascinating metric to look at. But again, the I think of that- the amount of triglycerides in LDL. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously in the aggregate, so for, for a given unit of measurement, but I mean, you could kind of think of it this way, pretty much kind of how I describe it with the energy model. How successful are the boats that are carrying your triglycerides, that is these lipoproteins, how successful are they at dropping them off? So when you talk to Peter of hyperlipid, I mean, this, these are the kinds of things that come up with why it is you could, for example, with lipodystrophy, why you could have high free fatty acids parked in the blood. There's a failure. There's a system failure in getting the energy where the body intends for it to go. I mean, to, to simplify it for people from the energy model perspective, I'd try to tighten the pitch a bit more and more and more to a way they can think of it. Really, you're having a complex conversation between two major entities constantly, your body fat, your adipose tissue, and your liver. And those two are constantly resupplying energy throughout your body. Certainly, there are other players involved, but the other players that are involved, and especially what degree of insulin resistance that comes into play, such as muscle insulin resistance, have a big impact on that conversation and the success of that process of the energy re redistribution, right? So bringing it back to uh, Atia's podcast, yeah, I'm glad triglycerides are taking more of a center stage. I don't like triglycerides or what we're about to talk about, OxLDL, being discussed as though, hey, now we found the new troublemaker. Because that always then starts it from what I like to call the lipoprotein-centric thinking, which is to say, hey, I'm trying to find which marker to look at so that I can call that the murderer, right? I would like to put something else on the table, which the engineer in me wants to put out there, which is, hey, is it possible that this pattern you're seeing, this higher preponderance of marker X, could actually be a reflection of the problem as opposed to the cause of the problem? Imagine right? that. Yeah, imagine that. So, hey, if I smoke a lot, I could bring a lot of oxidative stress into my body and therefore observe potentially maybe higher oxidized LDL particles. Is it the LDL particles that are the problem or is it the root cause that I brought about through my smoking habits? Are there uh, foods that I can consume that bring around a higher degree of oxidized LDL? Well, yeah, we already have lots of studies on- Like linoleic acid. Yeah, oh, well, yes, of course. How many, how many free fatty acids can I get with double bonds into my system? Well, a certain amount I'm going to need. They're essential. But it, can I get an excess of double bonded fatty acids to where I've got greater targeting of oxidation? Yeah, I, I certainly think that I can. And, and incidentally, that was one of the first experiments I was going to do before the one I just did, which is that I was going to have uh, extra virgin olive oil at very high quantities, uh, and it was going to be a double crossover experiment, but I, I ultimately just couldn't stomach it, and I had too many other issues. That We'll save that for another time. But this brings me back to OxLDL. Okay, so oxidized LDL particles, the assay for OxLDL, is a stronger associative measurement to atherosclerosis than just LDL particles alone. However, when I learned about the oxidized LDL assay, I want to say like three years ago, uh, even though I liked its tighter association, I was like, actually, I don't, I don't think that this will work given it's a pass-fail model. It's a Boolean model. Correct. In other words, if your if you're, uh, lipoprotein, let's say at its minimal level that's detectable, it could detect, say, three oxidized phospholipids on your LDL particle. 
uh, that's its that's its floor. It's going to treat that as exactly the same as if you have thirty oxidized phospholipids on your LDL particle. They're both the same, right? So, as an analogy to kind of get get it across to people, we have cars that probably have scratches on them. We still drive those cars. It's fine, right? If you were to just count cars on the road that have scratches on them, you'd say, "Wow, there's a lot of damaged cars." If that's your if that's your standard for what you would call damaged. And therefore, if I it, right now I'm in Golden, Colorado, let's say that I were to go to uh, Chicago, I would go, oh my gosh, the damaged car ratio in quantity, or not the ratio, but the total quantity has gone up, even if the ratio is exactly the same. You see the problem here. So no, I'm not interested in minimally modified LDL particles being equivalent to maximally modified. I wanted to actually get the degree of modification because I do think if you could count the actual oxidized phospholipids, that would be a powerful metric. How many scratches are on the car? Well, just how many damaged, you know, phospholipids. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because then you could see whether it's a small number of smashed up cars or a large number of cars for which there's a, the, an equal amount of smashed upness, right? I know I'm kind of stretching the analogy here, but you get the picture. So I, at the time of talking about the oxidized LDL particle, I said, you know what, I'm gonna eventually do an experiment on this but I think it's gonna track with LDL particle count. And I announced it, put up the, as I like to do, Paul, this is a weird thing I do. I announced my hypotheses in advance of getting the data and nailed it. Crazy kid. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it tracked perfectly <clears throat> with my LDL particle count. And this was an experiment I did last year. And it looks actually like I faked the data because even though I sent it to two different labs, one was to the Cleveland Clinic, the other was to LabCorp, the R2 was like 0.99, it's ridiculous. The association, uh, the, the association variable, like the, the correlation, right. the correlation it's coefficient. Cor it's correlations in time. <clears throat> it's a scatter plot that looks like a straight line between three dots. Right. Um, so then I, I, the, I found out that there was a true oxidized phospholipid assay coming out from Boston Heart. I had a line into the rep he can, he can vouch that I literally said this over and over again. Can I be a part of the beta? Can you put me in any, like, if you want to need any early testing, just let me know. Uh, for, unfortunately, they couldn't do that for obvious reasons. Eventually, I had to wait till it was commercially available. Once it was commercially available, I, I again made a prediction. I said, you know, in spite of having sky high LDL particle count, in spite of being at the 99th percentile for the population in both my LDLC and my LDLP, I think my oxidized phospholipid is going to be low. In fact, exactly. it, it's the only way I can imagine this assay, assay would make sense, which would sound crazy, Paul, because I'll bet you if you went outside the low-carb community and you grabbed a bunch of people with atherogenic dyslipidemia, you are going to find, particularly their small LDL particles, will probably have a correlation with their oxidized phospholipids. So... Yours is the first podcast that I'm actually going to show this data on. Yeah. So just so people understand what we're talking about here, 99% of the oxidized LDL tests are not really valid because the one from Cleveland Heart Lab is a true-false. It's a Boolean test, which is really only going to tell you if an LDL particle, an LDL sphere, a phospholipid has and a certain threshold of phospholipids that are oxidized, that will be a positive. What Dave wanted to find was a test that was actually representative of the percentage 
of the phospholipids across that spherical LDL particle that were oxidized. But it's not. It's a, it's, so let me correct you real quick. This is actually quantitative. Quantitative. So we're, that's, that's going to be important later. That's going to okay. be important later. It's, it's as if you were to, for a given unit of blood, count the oxidized phospholipids, the ox PL, on ApoB, ApoB containing lipoproteins. As so, opposed to just a metric that looks at sort of a Boolean true-false metric of how many LDL right. particles are oxidized, which, as you said, really just tracks with your LDL particle number. Not a perfect test. This is a totally different test. I'm going to do this on myself, and Dave will find the results, and then I'll talk to you guys about it. With my massively high LDL, my hypothesis is that mine will be similarly low because it's not about, um, it's not about that. My LDL should be non-oxidized because I'm not having a lot of linoleic acid. I'm not having a lot of oxidative stress. So Here's Assuming Dave. You follow my advice. Not get a lot of exercise on the day before. Right, right, right. I, won't, I won't do CrossFit on the day don't before. Don't oxidize yourself right before the test. So, right. Okay. So listen, this is the range, and there's studies I've already looked into past this. Uh, Sam has some. Sam Semekis has some great studies on this. Uh, but the optimal, the optimal range is if you get under five. Borderline is is five to seven point five, and increased risk is seven point five nanomoles per liter. Right. So remember this. Five, middle is 5.0 to 7.5 to, uh, yeah, 7.5 and above is increased risk, right? There's a lot of great studies on this. But now I'm going to jump to what all three days were. And what's your LDL? Came, my LDL particle count was up at around 2,000 for most of this. I think it hovered between 2,000. And what was your and, LDL? Uh, uh, oh, LDLC? Yeah. LDLC bounced between, I want to say, uh, 280 at the peak for the hypocaloric. And I think for the hypercaloric, I went down to 200. We'll get a chance to look at that in a moment. So again, that's what Dave said. He's looking at, quote, very high LDL in milligrams per deciliter and a particle count above 2,000 nanomol per liter for his LDL. And yet his ox phospholipid ApoB is? Is. And this is for all three days. This is the maintenance level. It was 3.3. And for the uh, hypocaloric, that is to say I was eating low calories for five days. Sorry, I should actually give a quick intro um, to what the experiment is. All right. Just real quick. This is what I did for 15 days. For the first five days, I ate maintenance level, I guess technically carnivore, because it was uh, a combination of eggs, cheese, and Nathan's skinless hot dogs. Uh, along the one non-carnivore part was I had uh, multivitamin, which I don't necessarily vouch for multivitamins. It's more just kind of like a, a base insurance, but it's also part of my baseline diet. We'll get if you some beef organs su supplements from Hardened Soil. I, know, I, figured, your I figured you would say this. This is very nutritionally incomplete, which you'd be a hundred percent right. But a couple years ago, I chose this baseline di uh, diet because it's very portable. It's trackable. So if I'm traveling, then I can count on all three of these ingredients to be very capturable. Unfortunately, all other variations that I was coming up with would, you know, it depend on what place I was at. Uh, for example, I can't just make it a burger because the composition of burgers are going to be different from one place to the next. So exactly. if I had to buy stuff from a grocery store, what were three things I could count on getting almost anywhere? 
This isn't and Dave's ideal diet, you guys. This isn't his everyday no. diet. It's his experimental no. diet because Dave is the ultimate human test tube. And <laughs> exactly. in the future, we will, make, we will make supplements from hardened soil part of Dave's test tube. We'll make sure of that. But for now, that was what he was eating. Not, not the yeah. ideal diet. Well, and if COVID was going on, I would have chose a different diet regime because I know I'm not traveling for a while. Right. Okay. So I had maintenance level for five days, which I think was around 2,350 calories. So I don't gain or lose weight roughly. Then I went hypocaloric, and the hypocaloric phase was five days of exactly half mm-hmm. of the first five days, exactly half per day of the first five days. All in the meals were at the same times and were in exactly in half. And then for the last five days, I was hypercaloric. It was a lot more of the same three ingredients, but I couldn't do just double everything I was eating. I had to also have, um, I had uh, keto chow shakes uh, on top of that. There's a little bit more of a story as to why that was done. It was somewhat improvised in the moment. So that part wasn't carnivore, but I needed to replicate exactly what I did last year in the original OxLDL experiment. And that's why this is called the OxLDL replication experiment. And I have to tell you, Paul, you get great data when you do exactly the same thing one year later under different conditions. So it was it was hotter outside. I weighed two pounds less this year than I did from the year before, for example, things like that, right? And in that ex- to that extent, I'm, I was very, very pleased with the data. Uh, so with that in mind, remember, we've got these three phases. Phase one, maintenance level, phase two, hyper, hypocaloric, phase three is hypercaloric. And then I took wide spectrum blood tests at the end of each of these three phases. So I, I by the way, kept everything else I could the same, sleep, uh, how much I exercised, total steps I took a day, all of that. I tried to keep it all the same, because, including mealtimes, because any of these could possibly be confounders. I want to end that. So, all right, getting back to desktop. So we get back to OxPL. Yes, all of these are well below five. So I'm well into the uh, exacting range. You can also see my liver enzymes here, HSCRP, at uh, 0.7 for the baseline, for the uh, maintenance level. And then it got up to one for the hypo, which isn't too unusual. For the hyper, it went to 0.7. And here's where it gets really interesting. This is the first time I got to get a cholesterol balance test. So I was not able to get this last year. But I don't know how familiar you are with these markers, Paul, and I'm somewhat new new to them myself. Lathosterol and demosterol are both production markers for cholesterol. Synthesis, yeah. They're in the cholesterol synthesis pathway. Whereas these are absorption markers. Yep. Beta cytosterol and campesterol. Yeah, beta cytosterol and campesterol are phytosterols. They're from plants. Right. So we're not surprised to see these precipitously dropping when I moved into this diet. But here's where it gets interesting. Lathosterol I was definitely watching. This one I know a lot more about. And this one's used in a lot of lab data to determine production. So here's where it gets obviously pretty interesting. Uh, If I go over to my data here, right now you're looking at a spreadsheet of both experiments. These three columns, are the maintenance level, the hypocaloric, the hypercaloric from last year. These three columns are the same three phases, but from this year. 
And Paul, are you able to see this okay? Like for example, yeah. I'm highlighting my particle count, yeah, yeah. right? Well, I'm gonna take it a step further. I'm gonna scroll over here and you can see the correlation between these two data sets. The correlation between last year's three uh, numbers and this year's three numbers in all the three phases is a 0.98 in the Pearson. Super, super tight. Same thing with LDL cholesterol. But if you look closely, you can see that in the second phase, my LDL cholesterol is slightly higher, slightly, right? So 226 for the first phase, 234 for the second, 281 for the hypocaloric, 289 for the hyper for the hypocaloric in the second phase, right? And that's why the correlation is so tight. Think about this, Paul. I've done so many experiments between that experiment that I did last year and this year. My diet changed. I went on kind of a poor COVID diet like a lot of other people did initially because I was obsessed and getting horrible sleep. Then I realigned to get this experiment back into play. Paul, the engineer in me is like, holy cow, the only major difference that I am aware of is that actually I weigh a little less. I weigh two pounds less and that fits right into the energy model because the energy model would say that if I'm a little bit leaner, just a little bit, I should likely see my lipid numbers a little bit higher. And that's what I'm seeing here. And I'm just, I'm just dumbfounded by that. And just for people who are, if people aren't familiar with Dave's energy model, you can go back and listen to the first podcast we did. The other thing to note is that when he was hypocaloric, when he was not eating as many calories, his LDL went up. Now, there are many studies that I have shown on previous podcasts. I can show one now in this podcast. I have it pulled up on my screen. Um, we're doing this virtually that when you are fasting, your LDL goes up, which is actually something that makes sense in terms of an energy model perspective. If you are not taking in calories, your body is going to move the fat to your cells from other places, or your liver is going to put it into the boats and give you the energy in those ways, which is part of how the energy model works. So Dave's energy model if I might summarize it from my perspective, and Dave can correct me or refine this, it's basically that if you are eating more calories or if you are eating more fat, then your body will probably drop your LDL down. And this is suggesting that LDL is tightly tied to energy balance and not necessarily to atherosclerosis. Why would your body be killing you when you are fasting? It's like insult to injury. Your body is kicking you when you're down, Dave, according to Peter Atia, Tom Dayspring, and others. You, you're, you're doing a hypocaloric diet, and yet your LDL going, is going up. You're clearly getting atherosclerotic, so you're starving, and you're getting a heart attack, which doesn't make any sense because clinically what we see is that when you fast people, most of the metrics get better, and they get better from diabetes, they get better in terms of cardiovascular risk. As we suggested earlier, there's no really surprise that if you lose weight, your cardiovascular risk goes down. But if your LDL goes up when you're losing weight, why would your cardiovascular risk go down if LDL is causing atherosclerosis? Of course, it doesn't cause atherosclerosis from my perspective, but what does improve when you lose weight, what does improve when you limit calories, for people who are metabolically broken, that tends to get better for many reasons. And that's what I've talked about in the past. But this is why this, this pattern that Dave is pointing out between his LDL numbers and his calories is critical. I'm also very interested in the fact that your oxidized phospholipids on LDL on ApoB were low throughout this despite LDL levels that are massively high according to every single physician in the world. Very, very high. <laughs> well, people that we know. And, and this is where I want to draw that special connection to what I was just showing you with the production and the absorption. So I want everyone to remember this. 
before I flip back to the other graphic. Maintenance level, as I would expect, is kind of the baseline, it's 234. Hypocaloric, when I'm eating less fat, per what you just talked about, Paul, now my body's mobilizing more fat in VLDL, those lipoproteins that come from the liver, and VLDL, after they drop off their triglycerides, remodel to LDL. And therefore, you end up with greater LDL cholesterol because that's very fundamental to the both. So the total amount ends up going up. Then it starts to go back down when I go hypercaloric. This is kind of colloquially known as the Feldman protocol. Lots of people consume a lot of dietary fat coming up to a blood test because they know they can tank their LDL. Not that I'm recommending this, but this does in fact result, I believe, from if you're consuming a lot of fat, particularly if you've got more uh, insulin drive and so forth that's pinning more of the lipolysis in, you end up with less VLDL and therefore less successive LDL particles and LDL cholesterol. But remember this, middle, high, low, right? Middle, high, low. Now let's go back to those production markers. What do we see with lathosterol? We see a baseline of 52. What happens when my cholesterol goes up in the hypocaloric phase? My lathosterol goes down. What about when my LDLC is tanked down to 200 milligrams per deciliter, roughly? This has tripled. The lathosterol has gone up to 149, right? When I was on the podcast with Atia from two years ago, this was what he was suggesting. He was hypothesizing that actually um, lean mass hyperresponders, it could be just as simple as the production levels are going up to explain why the cholesterol would go up likewise. And I've, I thought then, I, don't, I'm, I think I've said this on, the, on his podcast before, but I've certainly said since, that I, I believe this whole time that all of these are dynamic, that all of these numbers would be dynamic, especially the production numbers. And I'm glad to finally be getting this data in hand because that's exactly what it looks like. I would be willing to bet you, and I'll bet you wouldn't take the bet, <laughs> that if I were to do this again next year, that we would see comparable changes in the production levels especially. I can't say I know for sure on the absorption levels, but the production especially. And I think that's very relevant because that then tells a different story. Even as cholesterol level production goes up, the actual detected levels in the blood go down. That's an important piece of the puzzle, I believe. What do you think is going on there? Well, so this is where we've got to get back to how this is, not, how this is a dynamic system. I did a very lengthy presentation uh, from a few months ago that's on new insights with the energy model. And one of the things that came up in studies as old as, gosh, 60 years ago, I remember one person on the, the heels of the rabbit study, because I, I believe he was somewhat inspired by some of the other I don't know if I'd say inspired by how the other rabbit studies were conducted, but definitely wanted to look at how cholesterol changed. And of course, they were looking mainly at total cholesterol. But he was remarking on how, how rabbits who were fasting might actually see uh, higher detected cholesterol in the blood, but yet a lower production in the liver. So this is where... This is, this is another thing that's, that's come up in prior podcasts. I would argue that there's just a greater reuse. There's a recirculation. There's no, there's no fixed amount of time in which cholesterol can be in the body. 
your body is actually very greedy with cholesterol. It's very keen to keep a tight hold of it if it doesn't have it in excess. And it makes total sense. If it needs it for the construction of the existing lipoproteins, my full expectation is that it would continually reuse it. So whenever you're detecting it in the blood, everyone kind of assumes that there's the same amount going into the on-ramp as those that are going off the off-ramp. And no, I, I would argue it's, I, I think you've got to put in, put onto the table that actually there's a loop, just like a racetrack. You can keep adding cars to the racetrack, but you can't count on those cars having a fixed amount of time on the racetrack. Just like if they're going off into you know a pit stop, you can't count on there being a, a fixed amount of time that they're in the pit stop, right? Without actually being able to track the going in and out of the entire the entire roadway, you just don't know. But we don't know this much. We know that it's expensive for the body to make cholesterol. It's 30, 35. I think somebody actually found additional steps beyond the 30 I'd first learned about from like five, six years ago. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it, but it's it's not it's not a small affair, even though it does make a lot of cholesterol, even though your body makes a lot of cholesterol. I believe that it is conditionally essential. And I know that that's also a controversial idea because mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of existing lipidologists would say that your body makes all the cholesterol it needs to. And I think, I posit, let me put it this way, I posit that that's somewhat dependent on its existing constituent components resident in the cell. So certainly the cell, if it can, will make cholesterol if it's absent its availability. But do I think cholesterol might be conditionally essential like some amino acids? I do think that, definitely. I think it's very possible. Um, in the podcast with Peter Atia and Tom Dayspring, they make this point to say that if you look at the total body pool of cholesterol, the amount circulating in the lipoproteins is very small. And Tom Dayspring goes as far to say, if you lower your cholesterol down to 40 or 50 milligrams per deciliter, there's still plenty of cholesterol for all your cells. And I kind of like, kind of like choked a little bit. And I thought, I'm not sure you can say that, especially with the, the, the reproducible spike in psychiatric events, suicides, violent homicides, mood disorders, and all sorts of other problems we see when you lower the serum LDL. I'm not convinced your body does have enough cholesterol when you inhibit HMG coa reductase. And I would debate Tom Dayspring or Peter to that any day of the week. I'm just not sure that looking at the total pool and saying, oh, there's so much more in the cell membranes than there is in the lipoproteins means anything about how much your body needs and really gives any sort of a safety profile for lowering your serum LDL cholesterol to 40 or 50 milligrams per deciliter like you might do with a statin and a PCSK9 inhibitor. So I was really disturbed by that comment from Tom. Um, and, and I think that very it's, it's very likely that cholesterol is a conditionally essential nutrient for humans and that getting in the diet often makes you feel a whole lot better. Um, I do want to show this paper, the fasting increases serum LDL. This is actually, you know, consistent with your data that you're showing there. I mean, here it is, guys. When you fast, you're killing yourself, according to the lipid hypothesis. So you guys decide what you think is going on here. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, other than the fact that, hey, LDL might actually be a part of something like an energy model where it's moving things around the body and isn't actually killing you in the right context. Again, the people in that study were non-obese adults. So imagine that you're raising I your- got some, I got some great data to add to that. Yeah. In the presentation that I did, we found, uh, Siobhan and I found a number of studies for which you could observe both in hibernation and in migration, animals that had extended fasting. And indeed, they would become hyperlipidemic. Our favorite example, brown bears. 
brown bears would go into hibernation for a very extended period of time. And these scientists, because they observed it for some who were in the zoo, said, hey, let's actually see what this is like in the wild and compare them to those in captivity. And they did that, but they even went a step further. They managed to get some uh, aortas from bears that had gotten hunted so that they could actually also look at what level of atherosclerosis that they had, knowing full well that they would get super hyperlipidemic during these periods of time where they were hibernating. So for those people who say, hey, wait, your fasting is just not long enough. There's not enough area under the curve. You can definitely look at bears who are hibernating and they have a very lengthy extended stay. I actually didn't know if it was like two or three months. This is much longer than that. And they're holding at super high levels of lipids. And guess what their uh, guess what their level of atherosclerosis development is? Essentially none. It's none. You can, can see you send the me those section. studies? Oh, I for will. I definitely will. Yeah. It's uh it it's it's continually fascinating to me because again, that's the very distinctive context that we want to be looking at. We want to look at high LDL in the metabolic context. And we want to take away, we want to take away other things that could be the C or the D and so forth. That's why I don't want to look at single lipid data because single lipid data can unintentionally lump together all of these other cofactors that could be influences on this. And that's that's why, like for me, I think we just have to do this study. We just have to do it, Paul. We have to get the data that's relevant to us in the low-carb community especially and just find out is this really going to be changed the vasculature? We just need to get a bunch of low carbers to fast for six months and we'll have the day. Well, actually, <laughs> they already have LDLs that are super high. We don't have to have them fast for six months. But if they did fast, their LDL would go up. Um, in, in reference to what we were saying earlier, I want to share this study. A strong increase in hydroxy fatty acids derived from linoleic acid in humans, low-density lipoproteins of atherosclerotic patients, this has to do with the ox LDL that Dave and I were talking about and the fact that Dave, and, and we can now measure this through Boston Heart, it's something I'm going to start doing with my clients and on myself, and I'll show you these results in the future. You can look at these lipid peroxidation products, these phospholipids surrounding the outside of an LDL. And what you find is that in people who have atherosclerosis, they had two groups. They had a group that was 36 to 47 and a group that was older, um, aged between 69 and 94. And the content of 9-HODE, which is one of these oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism, in the LDL of atherosclerotic patients aged 69 to 94 increased 30 to 100-fold when compared with young, healthy individuals. Wow. So, and they say, that, they say that the same thing is true of people who are even younger. So they had um, the level of 9-HODE uh, obtained from LDL of young atherosclerotic patients aged 36 to 47 was increased by a factor of 20 when compared with samples from healthy volunteers of the same age group. Again, we can't say that that oxidation of LDL is the problem, but it seems to be a pretty good marker for atherosclerosis. And so isn't this interesting that here's Dave with a high LDL, in some cases a very high LDL of 2200, 2300 animal per liter, with very low levels of these oxlams, very low levels of these oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism. And yet in patients with atherosclerosis, studies like this clearly show that levels are 30 to 100 fold when you have atherosclerosis going on, but we're not seeing that. I can't wait to get these data in myself. 
Now, I have something to add to that, which comes from some of these recent papers. In fact, Sam sent me the one that I'm going to, about to reference. I need to find it for you and get and Fortunately, because I'm on my on the road and I've got my laptop, I need to actually get home to the home base where everything's in a, in a folder. I should have just brought that folder. But uh, what they were positing is that a certain amount of detected oxidized phospholipids could actually be a certain amount of the efflux of those oxidized phospholipids coming out of atherosclerosis, atheromas, right? Which is possible. I that I I will concede. I kind of paused on because that seems like that's a fairly sizable amount. But it's possible. All I know is this, which is, it's not whether or not. So I think if you get a an LDL particle highly oxidized, then understandably it's going to be removed from circulation by a scavenger receptor. Uh, for example, our endothelial cells have themselves scavenger receptors, such as you know CD thirty six, LOX one. A sortilin, and so on and so forth. They're, they're, they have binding domains specifically to grab modified LDL particles. And this is why I've wondered for a long time how much or to what degree, I don't think it's 100%, but how much does having high levels of polyunsaturated fatty acids actually reduce, reduce the amount of LDL particles because quite literally they're just getting removed more by scavenger receptors because they're getting modified faster. And this isn't, this isn't to say, I'm not trying to make the claim that therefore it's going to cause a higher level of atherosclerosis, but I, I do want to emphasize this. I do want to emphasize that I think it's possible it is a dose makes the poison situation because, in, because yes, those oxidized LDL particles do need to ultimately get processed. We'll just call it that in a larger sense. They need to get let's say disarmed. So in some, they need to either be uh, sent into a lysosome of the endothelial cell, or they need to be phagocytosed by the macrophage so that they can get pulled apart. But regardless, they're on the to-do list. They're not going to be processed in a typical way that might be like the absorption by the hepatocyte. And that's a, that could be a big deal if you get up to certain levels. I do think that that's got to be considered as one possibility. And I think it's totally true. Check this one out. I'm sure you've seen this paper. Uh, change in dietary fat intake alters plasma levels of oxidized LDL and LP little a, which is something that Sam Samikas is very interested in. Uh, they took the saturated fat, which is supposed to be killing us. They decreased it from 28 to 20 grams, and they increased the amount of heart-healthy, quote-unquote, polyunsaturated fat that your, that your cardiologist would love from 11 to 19 and they saw what happened to the LDL. Well, guess what? The amount of oxidized LDL in the plasma increased and the amount of LP little a increased despite the fact that overall LDL levels went down. So I agree. I think it's very possible that LDL was being cleared, but the overall amount of LDL that was oxidized went up when you decrease saturated fat. So how, mm. I mean, studies like this just make me kind of incredulous that someone can believe that lowering LDL by giving polyunsaturated fat is a good thing, or that LDL in and of itself is de novo causing atherosclerosis, there's clearly a third variable or a fourth variable. There's clearly a C and a D. And, and why anyone would want to have a high polyunsaturated fat is beyond me. Um, you should ask those guys from Sigma Nutrition to test their oxidized LDL because I know they're both proponents of polyunsaturated fat. I mean, I think this would be a fantastic assay Let's get some more people. Let's get Alan Flanagan to test his ox LDL, ox-fos LDL. 
and then we'll see what's really up. You, if I were to play, if I were to play the the devil's advocate, because I've heard this advanced before, there's been people who have agreed with what I'm suggesting that it may indeed be a greater and faster oxidation of LDL particles, and therefore they get removed from circulation. That that's actually a net benefit, not a net detriment, because it's the LDL particles and their residence time in the in the vasculature that's the bigger problem you'd want them to be removed by scavenger receptors as opposed to smashing into the endothelial wall not that that's what i'm claiming but i'm i'm giving them their due by saying that that's one hypothesis i myself i really feel paul like there's a lot of opportunity for things like animal models where you just let them live out a life a, a true you know honest to goodness life with potential modified LDL particles in the way that we think would be beneficial as opposed to these very super short experiments where you don't actually get to see it. The one catch is it's hard to do with rodents because rodents have a very different lipid system than we do. You have to do it with something like, you know, hamsters or um, um, I think it's guinea pigs that are at least somewhat comparable to us and also have like, say, LP little a. So what's, what's ironic to me is that people would criticize what you and I are doing sometimes and say, you guys are killing people. And I think, you know what? If we're right, then you guys are killing people. You know, I said that with Peter on the podcast that I recorded with him from Hyperlipid this morning. And I think he's totally right. This is atherosclerosis and your cardiologist gave it to you. It's funny because I'm looking at the other guys who are advocating for polyunsaturated fat and saying the exact same thing they're saying about me, which is you are dangerous. And I'm saying, yeah, you are dangerous. One of us is wrong and one of us is right. And we better find out who is right. And that's why these conversations are valuable, but we shouldn't be vilifying each other. We should just be saying, hey, these conversations are valuable. Neither of us should be silenced because one of us is killing people and it's either me or you. There is no gray area here. In my opinion, uh, you know, like, I'll concede. I'll, I, I would, I would probably not <laughs> take that tag. I will say this though, I, kind of semi-related to what you're saying. I do think that there is a default position when it comes to LDL full stop that I do object to, which is that either the reduction of it is neutral and doesn't have any effect, or it's beneficial. But there, there just is not consideration that the reduction of LDL could have any net detriment. And this is, not, this is not me saying, hey, let's start with that position instead. So while they're starting with the position that it's either neutral or beneficial, we're going to say it's either neutral uh, or not beneficial to lowering it, right? All I'm saying is both sides should be able to come together and agree on one thing. Let's go get the data. <laughs> Let's go get the data, look at it ourselves. At a minimum, let's look at a year because we already have more than enough data on those people who have LDL levels as high as yours, Paul, that would suggest they're in big danger. And hey, they might be. That's all the more reason we should get started today. I agree. And I'm excited for that study. I just want to share one more that my friend Nathan sent me. Shout out to Nathan. I believe he's Nathan equals one on Twitter. Um, oh yeah, this is a good one. I so like this, this is interesting. I'll let you comment on it as well, but it's an actual pathology study looking at the quantification of ApoA, Apo little a, which is LP little a from LP little a, and ApoB, which is ApoB 100, presumably from LDL in human atherosclerotic lesions. The takeaway from this, I haven't had time to look at it in super detail. Nathan just sent it to me yesterday, but I think you've seen it also, Dave, 
was that there was no correlation between the amount of ApoB in a plaque and the ApoB in the blood, which is interesting. So there's essentially no correlation between this apolipoprotein um, that's on LDL and the amount of LDL in the blood. There was an association between Apo little a and uh, the amount of LP little a in the blood, but not ApoB. And LP little a um, and LDL are different types of particles. They're essentially the same LDL particle, but it's an LDL particle with an, uh, an, an apoprotein, apolipoprotein little a attached to the apoprotein B100 on the LDL. I'll show a photo of it. But what's interesting is that for essentially these non-modified LDLs, there was no association between the amount of ApoB in the plaque and the LDL in the blood. Is that what you read this to say also? Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, the, there's, a, there's a major problem we have in looking at plaques full stop, and that's that they're not regularly stained for LP little a or APO little a. And they should be. We should actually know right now, we should know what the likelihood is of any atheroma to, or, or, or for that matter, any um, um, fibrous cap, all of them. We should know just what degree there is of APO little a present relative to non um, APO little a APO B. So, sorry, the one piece of this puzzle that I think people need to understand is LP little a is like a lipoprotein that has an APO B on it but the ApoB attaches a tail and that's the Apo little a, right. Uh, thanks for putting that up. So yes, you can see on, on the left side, the LDLC, that's really LDLP per se, but that's the ApoB. It's this gigantic protein that kind of, it's like snaky and it sits over top of it. LP little a is basically just like an LDLP save. It's got this attached, it's this attachment of Apo little a on it. Why is this important? Well, it's important because we do not find LP little a in healthy tissues. We don't find it. And that's because it's what's known as an acute phase reactant. Acute phase reactant, you can think of as just any protein that comes up at least 25% in the blood as part of the immune response. So as that happens, you need to do something about it. You need to, uh, it's, it's part of the, um, let me put it this way. If you're observing a lot of acute phase reactants, in your bloodstream, then that's something that if you're seeing chronically may mean that there's a big problem. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, can, can I pause for a sec? What? Uh, hold on. All right, so we're talking about LP little a. Dave had to pause for a moment. We've been rapping for a long time. We were only gonna do an hour and a half. We're getting on two hours here. We should start to wrap it up. But I think the LP little a story is fascinating. There's a lot for us to learn about LP little a. I'll probably get, I'll try and get Sam Samikas on the podcast and talk to him about it. As you're saying, LP little a doesn't end up in healthy tissues, but there are some people with this genetically high LP little a, and we don't quite know what that means. And I've heard Tom Dayspring talk about more and less bad LP little a. I think we're going to find out more about LP little a in the future. Some people think it's a molecule. It's like a modified LDL that scavenges oxidized phospholipids. But the idea of oxidized phospholipids keeps coming up, and we really don't want extra oxidized phospholipids and it's pretty clear that if you stuff more linoleic acid into your body, then you're going to get more oxidized phospholipids and more LP little a. That's probably a bad thing. So we showed that in a study earlier. So we've covered a lot of ground, Dave. Is there anything you want to talk about before we wrap up this episode? I'm sure there will be more. Yeah, actually, uh, before getting off LP little a, I do want to say that quite it's coincidental at this very moment, my colleague, uh, Siobhan Huggins, did a presentation just on LP little a. 
and it's going to be up and available. We intend to have it at the following address. It's going to be at cholesterolcode.com slash LPA, just to make it easy for everybody to do, just slash LPA. Cool. But the last thing I would like to say is that the um, when is it going to we be up? suspect, what's that? When is it going to be up? It, it, it's actually up right now on YouTube, but by the time you air this, I'm sure we're going to actually make that address. But yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. I want to read it, yeah. It's, it's a presentation, so you got to watch it. Cool. But uh, the other thing I would want to mention is that Siobhan Huggins and myself, generally speaking, we keep coming back to and seeing in our data three components that seem to be the primary influencers of lipids and lipid enzymes, for that matter, like, like LPPLA2, for example, right? And this most recent experiment that I had, even though there was a lot of data we could have gotten into and we didn't, uh, the, all the lipid numbers, you'll see them shift up and down with my m metabolic changes based on the diet that I have. I would posit that there are three main influencers, three main categories, two of them that get the most focus. Pathology, so some disease state that's changing your lipid numbers. Genetics, so some genetic aspect, and sometimes these two are interrelated. But the one that does not get a lot of attention is metabolism. Metabolism is the third major category. And it's one that I'm really hoping that we start changing, particularly coming into this next decade, into how it is that we think about lipids and the lipid system and how crucial it is if you are choosing to be powered by fat. Because if you are, guess what? That's, that has to be carried around in your bloodstream. It's carried by albumin when they're free fatty acids. It's carried by lipoproteins in mass when it has to be fed to your tissues either to uh, supply to non-adipose tissue or to replete existing adipocytes. And so I, I think all of this is a, major, uh, is a major link back to, of course, cholesterol, which is how I got into this whole thing in the first place. But the energy metabolism is something that, without question, needs to be getting a lot more attention. Metabolic health is paramount, in my opinion, and is the context through which we should interpret all of this. It's the lens through which all this should be viewed. And so people always ask me, how am I metabolically healthy? Well, you guys know how to do it. Eat an animal-based diet. Eat nose-to-tail animal foods. Make that the majority of your diet. You can still be powered by fat and eat some carbohydrates, don't eat high fructose corn syrup, and definitely don't eat excess polyunsaturated fats. Don't fear animal fats, eat nose to tail. That's how you become metabolically healthy. It's not rocket science, but what Dave is doing basically is, which is why I'm always grateful to talk to him. And I love talking to engineers because you guys always teach me things and I always learn from you, Dave. So thank you for coming on today. Where, where do you want people to go? We've got cholesterolcode.com. Where should people go to support you to find more of your work? What do you got going on? Right now, more than anything, I really do want to pitch this study and to contribute to the study. Absolutely. Is, uh, link? At citizen, yeah, citizensciencefoundation.org. Citizensciencefoundation.org. It's worth emphasizing. It is, in fact, a charitable contribution. We are a fully qualified 501c3. And if you really do believe that we should actually see this risk, you should know that this project, all your contributions go straight to this study. There's no admin a percentage that's taken off the top that the core team, myself, Spencer Nadowski and Tommy Wood, who's helping lead as the principal investigator, we're all not taking any compensation. We just want this data to get captured. We want this, we want this to happen. That's full stop. And uh, uh, yeah, love it. now's the time. Now's the, this is, there's never been a better time than right now 
If you are concerned about high LDL, if you're not concerned about high LDL and you want to bring that evidence out for those people who are, because almost certainly you'll have somebody in your life who may be questioning your decisions. Again, help us get the data. Help us find out for ourselves. Oh, I think this is great, guys. I put the link there in the video. We'll put it in the show notes. All the show notes are always at heartandsoil.co. Um, when I was recently on Aubrey Marcus's podcast, we shared the link for that. On all the podcasts I go on, I'll share the link for Dave's study. I think funding this is critical. Like this question will change medical science. And though we all come at this with bias, uh, I think Dave is pretty uh, cautiously optimistic. You know, Spencer is worried about LDL. Tommy, as you know, is kind of, you know, uh, pretty in the middle of the road as well, but wants to understand this. But this will change the way that we can move human health forward because if we truly believe that an animal-based diet of meat organs and animal fat is what's optimal for humans, we're going to keep running into this. You and I had a dinner a while ago, you called lipids the sharp end of the spear. And I think it is, like this is the major sticking point. I can show some of my blood work and it looks pristine, even to the trained medical eye that's classically trained like I am until you come to the LDL and they fall out of their chair. Now, that should be, an illustration in and of itself. If everything looks great except for one marker, maybe your metric around that marker is wrong. <laughs> because if I'm so diseased eating this way, shouldn't multiple things be out of whack? That's what I think. But I think that the context is important. If you guys have questions about how to be metabolically healthy, you can always email me, drpaul at hardensoil.co. You know how to do it. But I appreciate that, Dave. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently, my friend? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's almost certainly that it's almost certainly that replication experiment, uh, even though it was a replication, it was radical to me to have to do something that's, that's a carbon copy of something I'd done before when I have such a long list of things I want to do. So it sounds funny because you'd think, no, that just sounds very routine and mundane, but no, in that sense, it actually was something that was very difficult. It's a, it's a really cool experiment. I appreciate you sharing it here on this podcast. And, and I really look forward to doing this oxidized phospholipids on ApoB yeah. in the future for myself through Boston Heart. Uh, and if you guys talk to your physicians, if you want this test, don't listen to a regular ox LDL test. It's not going to work, but this oxphospholipids on LDL is really valuable. So thanks again for coming on, man. I appreciate you mucho. Always fantastic to be on, Paul. We'll see you later. All right, you guys, thank you for listening to that episode with Dave. Really grateful to him for his work. Please check us out at heartandsoil.co. We have histamine and immune and blood builder out now in addition to beef organs, bone marrow and liver, fire starter, gut and digestion. If you don't know which one to take, there's a quiz on the website, on the shop page, or you can email me, drpaul at heartandsoil.co, and I will give you a personalized recommendation. Shout out to belcampo.com, whiteoakpastures.com, nutrisense.io, and forceofnaturemeats.com. All right, you guys, get signed up for the newsletter, heartandsoil.co.co, not .com. Every Sunday that comes out, you'll stay abreast of all the cool things that are happening. We've got some more new products coming soon. I can't wait to share them with you guys. You are part of the remembering. I appreciate you all. This is how we spread the word. Context is everything in medicine. Tell your doctor, have him listen to this podcast, have him email me or her email me, if they have questions, love you all. Stay radical.